Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Buchanan Lecture Theatre. I'm Sally Mapstone, Principal of the University of St Andrews, and it's a pleasure to welcome you all and our guest of honour, Dr Fiona Hill. I will introduce Dr Hill properly in just a moment, but let me first recognise that she joins us in St Andrews for our summer graduation session, as part of which Dr Hill was just two or so hours ago awarded an honorary doctorate. So may I ask you all, first of all, to join with me by welcoming and congratulating Dr Hill in proper St Andrews fashion. Thank you. There is just over an hour for our discussion today, which Dr. Hill has generously carved from a formidable schedule, so I'm going to keep my remarks succinct. I'm introducing today's event, after which I will hand over to Stephen Gethins, Professor of Practice in the School of International Relations and a Strategic Advisor on External Affairs in the Principal's Office. Stephen will lead a conversation with Dr. Hill for around 45 minutes, after which he will compare a question and answer session. The event's being recorded for posterity and microphones are available, so please do wait a moment for a runner to reach you so that you can be properly heard if you are asking a question. There will be around 30 minutes for questions and we will try to get through as many as possible, but we must conclude at 6.15 so that Dr. Hill and I can return promptly to graduation formalities. The honorary doctorate we have just bestowed upon Dr. Fiona Hill recognizes that she is an expert in every sense of the word, specializing in Russia and Eastern Europe. Fiona shares her expertise on subjects key to our political and historical moment, and she conducts herself with dignity and respect for seriousness and integrity within a political climate in which such qualities increasingly risk losing currency. These are attributes that Fiona has developed across her life and career. Fiona's outstanding political memoir, There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century, published by Mariner Books in 2021, and copies are available outside, gives a compelling set of insights into how this came about. Fiona was born in County Durham in Northern England. Her father was a coal miner and later a hospital porter as the coal mines closed. Her mother was a midwife. Fiona's first major removal from Bishop Auckland was to the University of St Andrews, and she graduated with a Master of Arts with Honours in Modern History and Russian in July 1989, a degree course which included a year at Moscow's Maurice Torres Institute of Foreign Languages. Fiona writes affectionately of St Andrews, but not without criticism for the contemporary culture of sexism and classism which surrounded and at times infiltrated our community. While There Is Nothing For You Here is thus an important and moving testament to the transformative power of education, it is also a reminder of how far we have come in levelling access and indeed what work we have yet to do. 
I lead on widening access for Scotland's universities, and I've taken great inspiration from the social mobility recounted in these pages. And it should not go without mention that as a former chair of the university's American foundation, Fiona has done much work to support others who walk in her footsteps. Following her time at St Andrews, Fiona relocated from the UK to the US, where she read for a master's degree in Russian and modern history at Harvard University, where she remained to attain her doctorate. Fiona's training at Harvard led her to join the Brookings Institution, and she joined the National Intelligence Council in 2006 as an intelligence analyst, working for President George W. Bush and later President Barack Obama until 2009. In 2017, she returned to presidential work when Donald Trump appointed her as deputy assistant to the president and senior director for European and Russian affairs at the National Security Council. It is in this latter role that Fiona Hill became a household name when she testified as part of the impeachment inquiry into President Trump in October 2019, proudly declaring, whilst so doing, that she was an alumna of our university. That testimony consolidated what many who knew Fiona already thought and announced her character to those as yet unfamiliar to her that this is a person with a deep-rooted moral compass, willing to use their education positively to shape the world and guided by a sense of what is right and decent, particularly impressive when working within the scope of two of the most tendentious leaders of our moment, Trump and Putin. Fiona continues to serve as an international leader on Russian affairs, informally advising governments through the Ukraine crisis and her generosity in joining us at this crucially busy time is outstanding. So please join me again in welcoming and thanking one of our most extraordinary alumni, Dr. Fiona Hill. for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for, for, for coming along and, um, and, and, and listening to us today. I have to say it's um, so nice to be able to do these things in person again after we've done a number of these online. Um, I will remind the audience that not only can you see us, but we can see you. Um, so all those habits that you've picked up by watching these events on Team or Zoom or elsewhere <laughs> will be noticed, not just by us, but by, by, by those around you. Um, but thanks for coming along. Um, Fiona, thank you so much. I'm, I'm wondering, just, just to get us started today, can you tell us just a little bit about why you wrote the book and a little bit of the background to, um, to that? Well, some of the uh, themes that I cover in the book, I've been thinking about, obviously, for a very long time. But really what prompted me to write the book was that experience in the first impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Um, I had to explain myself um, in, in front of uh, the panel uh, of Congress, but who I was, where I was from, why I was there. I mean, I'd been subpoenaed, actually, to give evidence um, at, the, um, at the first impeachment trial and hearings. And as part of that, as um, Sally uh, mentioned, um, I had given a little bit of a potted history about my background. Mm -hmm. And I got hundreds of letters afterwards from people from similar backgrounds and saying that they had been most affected in many respects by some of the things that I said at the very beginning, particularly you know, the kind of story of coming from relatively humble origins 
and then you know speaking up and telling the truth and you know sometimes in life the simplest act something just telling the truth about circumstances can be the most powerful and I was really struck by the impact of telling the truth and something I hadn't really you know thought twice about but also in that moment of the impeachment trial of a US president I mean who, who would ever think that you would be you know, basically in the impeachment trial of a president. I mean, nobody would ever... I mean, I have to say that when I, you know, first took the job to work in the Trump administration, I did realise this was going to be unusual, that some you know, awkward things might happen. I just didn't quite expect it to be that bad. I went into the Trump administration. I mean, I wasn't really appointed by Trump. He had no idea who I was. And only now he seems to have realised that, as um, was mentioned a little earlier, I'm a deep state stiff with a nice accent. He, he really couldn't remember who I was from you know, the times when I was actually there. I was hired by people around him yeah. because of the interference of Vladimir Putin in the US election in 2016. And I'd gone into the administration you know, thinking that the national security import of this would really have focused everyone's attention, found out that it had not, because that we were in a uniquely polarised political moment. And I wanted to be able to explain how had we got to this point? How would we ended up with the impeachment of a US president over asking the leader of a foreign country to do him a personal favor in a, in a very fraught uh, political circumstance? That was in itself highly unusual, or not to say irregular. And I also was very much struck by the emergence of Trump on the political scene yeah. in 2016, nobody expected him to be the candidate for the Republican Party. Nobody certainly expected him on the first glance to become the President of the United States. But if you'd actually been paying attention to larger trends, you might have anticipated it. And I was also struck by the fact that um, in 2016, of course, there was the Brexit referendum yeah. in uh, the United Kingdom. My own um, you know, region uh, was um, part of that as well. We'd actually talked in the Green Room about my hometown of Bishop Auckland County, Durham, voted 61% in favour of Brexit. And yet all the investment in my hometown was actually coming from European Union funding. Mm -hmm. But there was this moment um, in that period of 2016 when everybody um, was really attracted to populist politics. And strangely enough, Vladimir Putin, the person that I'd been studying, in fact, for the best part of you know, two decades, I joined the Brookings Institution in 2000, just as Putin became the president of Russia. And of course, he was a very mysterious figure. Everyone was trying to figure out, who is he? Um, I wrote a book with a colleague, Mr. Putin, operative in the Kremlin, trying to figure this out. He'd interfered in the uh, US election. And we thought, perhaps, he might have also interfered in the Brexit referendum, and maybe even you know, previously in the referendum you know, here in Scotland on independence. And he certainly later on interfered, uh, as we uh, discovered, in the referendum in Catalonia, yeah. um, in Spain, for example. And he was also a populist president. Mm -hmm. He came into power in 1999-2000 saying he was going to make Russia great again. And so all of this was all coming together. I thought, how can I explain this, partly for myself, but then to other people as well. So lots of different threads came together, and that's um, how I set about to write the book. Well, it's really interesting, and I want to take you back, because the politics of this is, is really interesting. And, of course, you mentioned Brexit, and we will touch upon that, because, of course, today's the sixth anniversary of the EU referendum, so it would be remiss of us not to touch upon that. But can I take you, you back? And, and, and you write beautifully about your background 
and you also write about arriving in St Andrews. Can you tell us a wee bit about what was it like about arriving in, in, in St Andrews and in, in, in particular, and I'm going to pick you up on some of the, I like in your book when not only do you talk about the positives, but also some of the negatives, and Sally made reference to that. I also like the fact, and we're celebrating graduation today and the achievements of what's been a particularly tough, and I think yeah. you reflect this in your comments today, um, period for students, and you've got some lessons at the back of your books. So you're not just saying do better, you actually have some suggestions. But can you just tell us a little bit about what it was like arriving in St Andrews and talk to us a little bit about your time here? And, 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 and you're amongst friends, so, so the good stuff <laughs> and the not so good stuff, we're, we can take it. Well, you know, this is actually my old lecture hall, and... Um, yeah, the seating looks actually different. I think it's probably been replaced since the nineteen eighties. But you know, this this was the place where most of the lectures that I that I took here in um, with history and languages with Russian um, happened. So um, I never expected that I'd be sitting you know here on stage. So there's a, uh, a an unexpected let's just say yeah. turn of events here. Uh, but you know, I came to St Andrews in the autumn of nineteen eighty four, and that was a particularly tough time in the United Kingdom. And I think there are a few people here who will remember that early part of the 1980s, some who certainly won't. Um, but um, I, growing up in the north of England, in County Durham, most people probably haven't fully processed this. <clears throat> it's one of, another reason I want to explain this in the book. Every industry in northern England was nationalised after World War II. So I actually didn't know anybody who was mm. in the private sector. Everyone had been a coal miner or working as steelworks, the wagon works of the local railways, um, shipyards, shipbuilding. Everybody was in British something. Mm -hmm. And when my dad lost his job in the mines, he ended up in the National Health Service. So again, uh, the state sector. With the exception of a few people at um, the uh, corner shop, uh, there wasn't really anybody who worked for themselves. And in somewhere like County Durham, this was also building on what might, one might also describe as almost a feudal system before that. Um, before the Industrial Revolution, most of the land in County Durham was, uh, was owned either by the church, the Church of England, because this is the land of the Prince Bishops, the Bishop of Durham, or by very large landowners. And everybody was a tenant. Mm. And all of the buildings uh, around in the rural areas of County Durham painted white, so everybody would know that they were the, belonged to um, the, um, the Nevilles, uh, or, the, the, or, or Lord Lambton, you know, for example. And so this is an area that has a very you know, particular distinction to it. And when we had the mass privatisation of mm -hmm. the nationalised industries of Margaret Thatcher in the early 1980s, suddenly hundreds of thousands of people ended up out of their jobs at once. Because you closed down the steelworks the, and, and concert County yeah. Durham. Um, there was uh, actually somebody in my uh, first year at St Andrews who'd come from concert. Every single one of her family was, she was the only girl mm -hmm. out of um, um, a family of six. Uh, her five brothers, her father, her grandfather, all her uncles had all suddenly been made unemployed overnight uh, when the concert steelworks had closed down. And in 1984, um, it was a 90% of people who left school in 1984 didn't necessarily have a job to go on to uh, when they left. So there was a massive youth unemployment crisis. It didn't mean to say they wouldn't eventually yeah. get a job or an apprenticeship, but only 5 or 6% of people were going to, to university. 
I was very lucky that that was paid for, but coming to St Andrews then was a bit of a shock. It was a massive cultural shock mm -hmm. because I'd never actually spent any time before with people from um, the uh, private school system, yeah. people who worked for themselves or had businesses and were entrepreneurs or in some cases were more than entrepreneurs, <laughs> they were some mm. of the titans of um, British industry or members of the aristocracy. And it was just like being in an alien world at first. So I was quite struck, you used the term um, the infrastructure of opportunity and it's something that applies in the United States and, and, and in the UK. And I suspect, actually, in, in, in Russia as well, increasingly, with the, the, yeah. the, the gap between rich and poor. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by the infrastructure of opportunity and how that applied to students turning up in St Andrews, for example? Well, education is obviously a key part of that. <clears throat> but it's not just being able to come to uh, somewhere like St yeah. Andrews. It's all uh, what I was thinking about. This is the infrastructure that makes that possible. Mm -hmm. I was paid for by my local education authority. So actually... Um, unlike some of my counterparts at St Andrews, I had a full ride. I mean, I was basically had my fees paid and I was given a maintenance grant. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a key um, part of it. But then there was kind of a larger infrastructure around it. Um, before I came to St Andrews and I started Russian from scratch, they didn't teach Russian in my comprehensive school. So I had to go to a, an intensive Russian language mm -hmm. course. And uh, that was something that I had to do. It was also an opportunity to learn and um, Durham County Council paid the fees, but I didn't have the money to get there. I didn't have the train fare, and I yep. didn't have the, f uh, the money to actually stay in the halls of residence or to, to eat, and so what would, what would I do? What was the infrastructure that would make that possible? Because I'm sure for many of you here, you might have an opportunity you just can't take. It might be timing, but it might be circumstances. Sometimes, you know, for many people, you just don't have the wherewithal to take advantage of an opportunity. There are so many people miss out on things mm -hmm. because they actually can't afford a bus fare, or they can't afford a train fare. And I got some money from the local Rotary Club, but I also got some money from the Durham Miners Association. And what I just want to uh, mention, uh, first of all, is in the old days, um, the, the associations for workers that were the precursors to the unions, it wasn't just about getting uh, better conditions um, in the coal mines or the steelworks, for example. They also pulled together their resources to create their own infrastructure of opportunity. So someone like my father, who went down the mines at 14 and had no real formal education uh, beyond 14, yeah. he would be able to avail himself of an infrastructure of opportunity that was created by the miners through their dues. Mm -hmm. They would have lectures, they would have reading circles, there were um, uh, miners' art collectives, and mm -hmm. some pretty famous artists emerged out of it, and writers. And in this case, the Durham Miners Association gave me a small grant so that I would be able to, as a child of a, a miner, uh, that I would be able to go and take advantage of this opportunity. And as we you know, now see around us, so many students uh, today, it doesn't matter whether they're going to an elite university or um, even um, vocational apprenticeships, yeah. often that infrastructure of opportunity isn't there. It could be the transportation. Yeah. How do you get from A to B? We've all had to contend with the train strike uh, today. And if you, you know, don't have a car, a lot mm -hmm. of people didn't have cars, and, you have, and the bus service doesn't you know, run extensively, that infrastructure um, has also been depleted. And Thank so you. when we think about the university today, we have to think about all the ways, and I know that that's you know, what St Andrews is doing, yeah. that can make it possible for someone to take advantage of the opportunity. And how did that contrast, having been, of course, this is the UK's number one university, um, and then having gone to an elite university in the United States as well, how did St Andrews, in terms of your experiences here, compare to your experiences in the United States? 
Well, in the United States, and I mean, this is now something that St Andrews and other British universities are doing, you know, there was a lot more private philanthropy. Yep. So, I mean, here in Scotland, of mm. course, uh, the state guarantees everyone um, a, a university education, but that's difficult because, you know, then you have to cut your coat according to the cloth. So, if, you know, funding goes down, then uh, there isn't uh, yep. uh, so much wherewithal there. That's one of the reasons why I joined the St um, Andrews American Foundation, you know, to help to raise money mm. for, the, for the university. Because at Harvard, um, for example, I got a scholarship to Harvard. Uh, it's kind of amazing. I mean, they paid for everything. You know, my airfare, somewhere to stay, uh, you know, constant resources mm -hmm. to help bridge the gap, you know, for people. I, I was surprised when I got there about how many people from really poor backgrounds um, had um, been able to go to Harvard as undergraduates as well as graduates. I mean, I tell our students, you know, here in the UK, you could actually think of applying to Harvard because yeah. they've been able to raise so much money. Uh, and it's the public-private uh, dimension of this and more so the private philanthropy that really played a role. So that was something that was immediately... Um, uh, evident there. But in both places, over time, education has started to be seen as something more of an individual responsibility rather than something that's beneficial to all of us. And I mean, I, I just like to you know, urge people as we think about everyone who's graduated today, yes, that's an individual achievement. Mm -hmm. But all of our societies are so much better off if people are able to have the skills uh, that allow them you know, to basically uh, function, compete, get jobs and have lives in this extraordinary complex world. We need um, a better educated uh, society uh, for us all to get ahead. I mean, Scotland has all, always emphasised education as a kind of a larger social good. Yeah. But other places don't. I mean, Scotland is actually unusual um, in that regard. And I think the polarisation that we see today in our politics is in a large, um, to a large mass, especially in the United States, uh, the result of people not being able to have access to all kinds of education, further education, the skills that they need in the future. It's something that I really started to realise in the time that I was there. If you don't have um, some kind of uh, degree in the United States, two-year college, community mm -hmm. college, for example, you are less likely uh, to be able to, um, to have a job. And the big gap in voting, when you, when you look at you know, what happened in 2016, for example, you can actually judge what somebody's going, how they're going to vote based on their level of educational attainment. Well, let, let me ask you about that in terms of how it impacted on the politics, because you mentioned earlier on that in 2016, for instance, you had that moment of in, in politics. You had the election of Donald Trump. You had the UK leaving the European Union. I was involved in politics at the yeah. time. I, I, I remember <laughs> it was a period when everybody told us that it couldn't possibly happen that the UK would leave the EU. Um, and Donald Trump would, would, would get elected. Why did we get it so wrong? And did we misunderstand and fail to comprehend those levels of inequality? And people in Bishop Auckland, for example, you referenced that, voting 61% in favour of um, leaving the European Union. Why was that? Well, I think partly, and this doesn't include you, Stephen, but a lot of our politicians and you know, political commentators and analysts are from a different class. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, you know, certainly was the case um, in the United Kingdom. Yeah. I mean, there was very few people when I, where I was at St Andrews mm -hmm. in the 1980s in the working class, so you know, people who worked in nationalised industry. And also in the United States, um, although, as I said, places like um, Harvard had expanded out their educations, we got through mm -hmm. into the 80s, into the 90s and the 2000s, there tended to be much more emphasis on people who already had the wherewithal to get into elite universities mm -hmm. and a lot uh, less funding available, grants. Mm -hmm. my, my husband, uh, for example, uh, was one of 12 kids and his family originally from South Dakota 
And his father um, went to um, college on a, um, the GI Bill um, after World War II. His entire family were paid for something called Pell Grants, which were also for you know, kind of students from uh, deprived backgrounds. But by the time we got into the 2000s, that kind of funding had disappeared in the United States. And people like here were having to take out loans, not here in Scotland, but you know, yeah. the rest of uh, the UK. And so education, although it expanded in terms of the number of people taking education, the opportunities for people to get ahead also became quite constrained and of course a lot of people got heavily into debt that affected their life chances after that i know i wouldn't have gone to university if i had to get into debt i would have been honestly too frightened to take on the debt so who knows what my you know path might have been but that all started to feed into um you know the the phenomena that we saw in 2016. Yeah. if you had gone outside of london and had gone to not just bishop auckland yeah. but you know hartlepool sunderland just anywhere, actually outside of London, uh, and in fact, some different boroughs of London, you would have seen where we were heading and Maybe. just talked to people. I mean, uh, here, obviously, in Scotland, the vote was somewhat different from, but it depended on where you went uh, in, in Scotland as well. If people had just gone out and talked to people and asked them what they thought about things. Yeah. And if you look at what happened in the United States, Donald Trump was elected by only 70,000 votes in three counties in three states, in the old, the old industrial heartland of America, but now the Rust Belt. So they were the equivalents of, you know, Dundee and Glasgow and yeah. Newcastle and Sunderland and, you know, kind of many similar places. And it was obvious that people were frustrated and angry. They felt that the system wasn't reflecting them. They couldn't see people who looked like them mm -hmm. in politics. Uh, elite educational um, institutions or any kind of education seemed to be, um, you know, beyond their grasp. And then there started to be a backlash against it. You know, university college isn't for you apprenticeships uh, were disappearing as the big industries uh, closed down you couldn't get um, you know a, a, a job in a, a steelworks which used to be very well paid coal mines uh, also in the auto manufacturing the big car manufacturing industry everything was closing down and those pathways to a, in the america a middle class life were cut off and the same in the north of england you know people couldn't find decent jobs and they couldn't move when I was growing up um, in the 80s, um, I mean, some people here might remember um, some of the TV series, Alphavidas in Pet and Boys from the Black Stuff, about people, you know, workers from the north of England who lost their jobs and they went to work in Germany, they went down to work in London. With the expansion of um, basically free movement of labour in the EU, those jobs got cut off. Yeah. And so an awful lot of my classmates at school had become plumbers and electricians. They used to go down to London and, you know, basically, you know, work... Uh, do um, you know some uh, job for several weeks and then they would come back and they'd made a decent amount of money then they got displaced by Poles and you know Bulgarians and they started to feel really resentful uh, because they were getting you know cut out and nobody was obviously emigrating or immigrating to the north of England because there wasn't any jobs there but they were feeling that they were being you know cut out of those opportunities in the UK as well. So just to move on a little bit I was really struck in your book where you you draw similar themes in, in, in that regard between areas in the United Kingdom, such as the area in which you grew up, um, parts of the United States and the similarities. You talked about the parts with the mining communities and places like Pennsylvania that right. you could have ended up in um, as, as, as a child. And you even mentioned you talked about Russia, and I want to talk about Russia and the United States in just a moment as well. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, because of course everybody thinks that their own set of circumstances is, is very unique, but what I was really struck by in reading the book was how you draw that common thread, that this is something that Vladimir Putin, um, Donald Trump, and, and maybe, dare I say it, those who 
pursued vote leave in the United Kingdom found a rich vein of votes in, 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 and support in these particular areas. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, all of these areas uh, that um, provided the kind of base of support for you know, some of this phenomenon are, are very similar. They're all mm. the old, heavy, industrial uh, regions. And I could have written about Germany and France as well. I mean, you have in Germany the rise of alternative for Deutschland, you know, for example, in the East, uh, which um, obviously you know, found itself the kind of the, the stepchild of Germany after unification. The, similarly, the large industries there closed down. In France, you've got the urban-rural divide. You've had the Yellow Vest movement, yeah. you know, for example. The communists got displaced later on by the nationalists around Marine Le Pen. I mean, it could have been in many of the other um, settings as well. I mean, I picked those three countries because I could write about them you know, most effectively. But what's um, really um, fascinating when you look at Russia mm-hmm. is that Vladimir Putin's base of support is largely in the old industrial areas, the old tank factories, yeah. industrial you know, complex in the Urals, the Volga region, you know, for example. It's not in Moscow and the cities. He himself comes from hard scrabble um, background and he always presents himself as, well, I mean, it's harder to do that now, but a, a worker, a man of the people, and always making that appeal to the same, uh, uh, the same groups. But there is a, a real link between all of these places, uh, just in structurally, which is counterintuitive unless you actually you know, think about it from the bottom up. When I went to the Soviet Union for the first time in 1987, 1988, I was struck by how similar it was to the northeast of England. Remember, in the northeast of England, everything was nationalised. Well, of course, the Soviet Union, everything was nationalised. So, you know, this is the land of workers and peasants yeah. and coal miners. And I found myself workers aristocracy, whereas in Britain, you know, we were all on our, on our last legs. It was also that the Soviet system was failing by this point, just yep. as in the north sure. of England, the economy had failed too. Now, slightly different reasons. In the north of England, we had no demand, so all the shops were closed. In the Soviet Union, there was lots of demand, but there was no supplies, so while the shops were empty. They weren't closed, but they were empty. But there was the same uh, then phenomenon in the 1990s, in the 1990s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was mass privatisation, shock therapy, and it was really a shock. And mm-hmm. suddenly, everything really did start to look like the northeast of England. Uh, demand collapsed, people were out of their jobs, yep. there was a great deal of resentment, people felt a massive sense of dislocation. And when I came to the United States in 1989, I was shocked to see the same thing happening there as well, because I landed up, yes, in Harvard, but Harvard was surrounded by all these suburbs of Boston, which had also lost or starting to lose their uh, big manufacturing um, sectors as well. Their factories were all closing down. And around Harvard was the same kind of urban decay and uh, post-industrial landscape that I'd seen at home. And people were you know, trying to make ends meet by renting up uh, yeah. their houses to graduate students. And as I would go around and talk to people, they were expressing exactly the same concerns as people were from the northeast of England. So the northeast of uh, the United States was having the same experience. They bounced back quite quickly because you had MIT and Harvard, mm-hmm. and you had a lot of investment as a result of having the universities there that uh, tended to sort of generate you know, innovation. Yep. And um, the pharmaceutical industry came in, for example. In 20 years, that was turned around. But you know, parts of the, the former Soviet Union, the northeast of England, never really got turned around. Well, you talk about unlocking the opportunity of place that I find really interesting in that common thread. Before I, I mean, we've talked an awful lot about class, but I'm wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about gender as well and, and, and how that, because you write about that in the book about your own experiences, but also the experiences in the United States. And I was also really struck, despite everything that he said and, and behaviour during the 
election in 2016, you, you know that Donald Trump got 40% of the female vote. So I'm wondering if you can tell us, and I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about gender, and then I'm going to look forward a little bit before I open things out as well. Yeah, it's pretty counterintuitive given um, how misogynistic and sexist Trump is. Um, and I actually did take part in the uh, Women's March the day before I got offered the job. <laughs> that was a little on the strange side. And then, you know, um, afterwards, uh, the, one of my friends who'd gone around with me said, how could you do this? I said, well, I'm just going to show up every day as a woman and an immigrant and just do my best and, you know, <laughs> and just you know, have to deal with this. Uh, but, you know, I think when you really start to look at the, uh, and pass that vote, there are an awful lot of people who do feel themselves left out of the system, and, and um, Trump was that kind of white knuckle champion yeah. uh, who was just, you know, in there blowing the place up, and that was quite appealing to quite a lot yeah. of people. And you've actually seen that a lot of the, um, you know, some of the the, the women who are um, members of uh, you know, the kind of the, the the Republican Party now, who are, uh, you know, the most vociferous, have that same you know kind of attitude. Uh, as well, I'm thinking of people like Marjorie Taylor yep. Greene, who I'm sure everyone um, here has heard of as well. You know, kind of uh, emulating you know, the same the same um, kind of style. But for gender, you know, itself, I mean, another of the reasons that I decided to write about that. I mean, obviously, I had a particular experience in the United Kingdom, but it was really overlaid by that sort of sense of class, yeah. uh, which really tended to predominate. But when I got to the United States, the kind of class distinctions in the US disappeared because yeah. race really subsumes that there. Of course, yeah. And I was instantly given a pass as a white British person. They couldn't tell my accent. They couldn't tell the class. Somebody they actually thought, just... they could say, well, you sound like the Queen. I was like, I actually do not sound like the Queen. I think, anyway, I think you described it, you were told you had a hoity-toity accent. Yeah, I was sorry. At one point, I said, no, you have a hoity-toity Prince Andrew accent. I was like, oh. <laughs> That's not, it's not quite the compliment maybe it once was. I was looking for a but immediately being a woman became the thing. Yeah. And especially when I went to Russia, where that, you know, as soon as the Soviet Union ended, all the quotas on women yeah. you know, being evident disappeared completely. <laughs> and I have uh, Damon Pringle, who was the um, UK uh, ambassador to Russia, who must have really uh, felt that as uh, one of the, um, I think at the time, probably the only um, woman ambassador, one of the very few you know, women ambassador in, uh, in Moscow. And, um, extraordinarily difficult, you know, basically um, getting traction yeah. um, as a woman in Russia and often being ignored. I have a um, story where I, um, I was the national intelligence officer and I was sat next to Putin um, at a dinner. And I was, you know, all these things were going through my head. Why am I next to Putin? You know, I'm the less, least likely person to stab him with a fork. Or, um, <laughs> I mean, is it like Judy Dench in him, you know, because I was a national intelligence officer? And it was because I was a nondescript middle-aged woman. And I was like, piece of tableware because everyone you want the eyes on Putin. If a man had been sitting next to him, they'd have wondered, who is that man? Yeah. So that just showed you that you were just there to frame you know, the, the man himself. And then when um, I was working um, for the Trump administration, being a woman was a liability. Trump never wanted to hear anything from me. Yeah. He hadn't hired me, the National Security Council had hired me. He did least listen to Gina Haspel, who was the CIA director, mostly because he had to. Yeah. But uh, for others, uh, unless you were in his inner circle, he just disregarded you. He, he never remembered anyone's name. I only knew he was talking to me once when he said, hey, darling, are you listening to me? So it was, I, I start to reflect on that. There's that even if I had incredibly important information to impart, I couldn't impart it to him because I was a woman. And so it was getting in the way of me actually doing yeah. my job. And so I, I wanted to reflect that in a book. I mean, when men write books, they don't usually explain what it's like to be a man. 
-hmm. in a certain context. Yeah. But you know, as a woman, particularly in that kind of position, and as um, Anne would, um, you know, basically attest as well, it's very difficult in Russia, and that became incredibly difficult in the United States as well. So you use, I, I picked up an analogy from, from the book that, that you said at one point you'd had a bad experience in the Oval Office and over a press release. And the bit of advice that you got was, don't wear the same dress that you wore on that day and you won't notice. Is yeah, that, is that that's true? That's right. Yeah, because they, they said to me, um, he, he notices dresses, which I thought was strange. So, yeah. you know, you could just kind of come every moment, every, every day in a new dress, and you'll just be reintroduced. <laughs> I never imprinted, so I probably didn't get the right dress either, but anyway, there you are. I so, had to go out and buy a new wardrobe. Oh, wow, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I, I, know, I know we're going to get asked about the Trump White House, but, yeah. you, but you mentioned Vladimir Putin, and you're a Russia specialist, and we have this devastating war of aggression um, in Ukraine, which seems to have settled into an attritional conflict, a war that, of course, as any Ukrainian will tell you, started in 2014. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about, because we're reflecting on on the West as well, why did we get it so wrong about Vladimir Putin when all the signs were there from Chechnya, Syria, the invasion of Crimea, and where do you think this is going to, to go? So I'm wondering if you can just reflect and give us some of your insights about Vladimir Putin and well, what's driving him. One of the easiest um, ways in which we got it wrong is because, you know, we, we're a democracy. Uh, we are democracy rather, and we change all the time. Mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin has been in power for 22 years. And in that time, he's had five US presidents, God knows how many prime ministers in different countries. Uh, ambassadors have been and gone. People like me have been yep. and gone. And so we don't have consistency. Um, you know, if you have um, the Foreign Office as um, Ambassador um, uh, Pringle, you know, was you do have you know a certain level of people in the, the research departments, the sort of intelligence and research, you know, who were there, you know, watching this for all mm -hmm. the time. But they don't always, you know, get traction uh, with policymakers who always come in and do assessments all the time. So every two or three years, four years, we get a new assessment. I mean, I, I've been in, you know, the kind of in and out of the government several times, and every time I've done it, we've been yet another national security strategy, for example. So we spend a lot of time you know, navel-gazing and thinking about all the great things we're going to do, and Vladimir Putin just keeps on doing what he's been doing. Yeah. So we've dropped the ball there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, you know, many of us who've been looking at Russia for a very long time could have seen this coming. And in fact, Ukrainians and others, you know, could certainly see uh, that they were in the crosshairs. And a lot of it goes back to the early 1990s. So when you had the um, dissolution of the Soviet Union, it was picked apart. Um, the, the Soviet Union didn't actually collapse. It was actually the decision uh, of elites mm -hmm. to pull it apart. You had Boris Yeltsin in a power struggle with Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the, uh, then the um, president of the Soviet Union. Boris Yeltsin uh, was the president of the Russian Federation. And he and others wanted to get rid of Gorbachev. Remember, there was coups against Gorbachev. Yeah. And then you had Yeltsin and the presidents of uh, Belarusia and Ukraine getting together in a rather magnificent hunting lodge in the middle of Belarusia to basically dissolve the Soviet Union. And they set up a Commonwealth of Independent States, which was intended to be, provide a different structure mm -hmm. for the state. But it actually became a mechanism for divorce. And Ukraine was one of the first to move away from this. And there were many in Russia who could not conceive of the future without having Ukraine very close. So even in the early 1990s, there were nationalist Russian politicians, including Mayor Yuri Lushkov of Moscow, many people in the Russian parliament, 
who were always trying to figure out how to bring Ukraine back in, were making um, uh, claims on Crimea, for example, that have you know, gone with uh, Ukraine after independence. And when Ukraine first um, uh, was independent, it inherited an arsenal of nuclear weapons, of strategic nuclear weapons. They couldn't actually use them because they were actually stationed there and all of the, um, the, um, uh, know, the orientation of the weapons and all of the firing mechanisms all in, uh, in Moscow anyway, essentially contained. But there was a whole effort to try to get those uh, weapons taken out of Ukraine, also yeah. Belarus <laughs> and uh, Kazakhstan, to be dismantled in Moscow. And in that period, there was a lot of pressure put on Ukraine. Now, some people here, on, you know, for example, will remember this, but most of the people have completely forgotten it. So NATO isn't even in the picture at this point. And there were lots of threats against Ukraine from Russians. And that's why there was a, an agreement, a memorandum drawn up in Budapest mm -hmm. by the UK, by the United States as well as Russia, to guarantee specifically Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty against you know the kind of thing that we're seeing now because there was so much pressure on Ukraine. So irrespective of NATO, all the things that people are saying are the reasons uh, for uh, the um, invasion. Even before then, Ukraine was in the crosshairs. And as you said, 2014, uh, we really begin in earnest uh, with the war, with the annexation of Crimea because of uh, Ukraine trying to join in an association agreement with the European Union. So the threads of all of this yeah. go back to the early 1990s. But we haven't had people in place to keep hold of those threads the whole way along. And the people surrounding Putin are many of those people who were aggressive towards Ukraine mm -hmm. back in the 1990s. So do you think, and, and I should say to everybody, I'm going to open this up to questions shortly, so do have a think um, if there's anything you'd like to ask. But let me just ask a couple of questions. Do the Ukrainians have every right to feel aggrieved that they were let down in 2014? Is there something that we could have done better? And before I open it up, I have to ask this question as well. Um, so I'd like to take you back to 2014 under Barack Obama's administration. Um, we're very critical of Donald Trump, but, but I wonder if you could comment on what happened in 2014. And as part of that, before I open that up, can you talk to us a little bit about how Donald Trump viewed Vladimir Putin as well? I know they're two very distinct questions. Well, look, there are many junctures, actually, yeah. where we should have done something or been very mm -hmm. mindful of it. So, you know, back in the 1990s, we just thought about, well, how are we going to guarantee or give, you know, these assurances yeah. to Ukraine? What are we going to do if something happens? So we, and we didn't. We just gave them some assurances and <laughs> they weren't even worth the paper that they were, uh, that they were on. Uh, then, you know, of course, we had the, um, the so-called Orange Revolution in mm. Ukraine in 2004, and uh, Russia put a lot of pressure on Ukraine then as well. The, there were gas cutoffs um, of um, you know, pipe gas yeah. to Ukraine, 2006 again in 2009. We didn't really do anything then either. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the annexation of Crimea. We only actually really responded in terms of sanctions and really thinking uh, about how to tackle this, um, not just after war um, was instigated in the Donbass region, but only after the shooting down of the Malaysian Airlines yep. plane mm -hmm. um, over Donbass, the MH17. And that was really kind of what focused everyone's minds. But then again, we, we lost the plot. We didn't keep focused on mm -hmm. what was going on behind the scenes. There was also several uh, junctures where, I mean, again, I think you know, that the Obama administration also thought that Russia was a declining power, that they could have kind of waited it out. Yep. You know that the Putin was on his way out, Russia was on its way out. That was a that was an incorrect assessment because the Russians can always deploy um, resources to um, as they always have over history. Everybody's always written Russia off over and over and over again, and uh, it should never be written off. Just like we shouldn't write them off or Putin now. 
But in 2008, when Ukraine and Georgia applied mm. um, for a membership action plan of NATO, I was the national intelligence officer at the time. We advised against that, actually. And I'll just say why. It's not necessarily that it was um, wrong for Ukraine and Georgia to aspire to be part of NATO, and Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, um, other countries in the Baltic states that had been in the crosshairs um, of Russia had also applied, again, of their own volition. Remember, Hungary, Poland, yeah. and Czech Republic had been invaded by their own so-called allies in the mm -hmm. Warsaw Treaty Organization you know, in the, in the, during the Cold War. But we hadn't thought it through. Mm -hmm. In fact, nobody was actually expecting Georgia and Ukraine to apply um, for the um, NATO summit in 2008. And we were asked to do some assessments for um, President Bush. And we um, quickly assessed that this was not going to, this wasn't going to fly. Most of the major NATO allies were not in favor of it. They were worried about provoking Russia. And it was also very clear from you know, everything that we'd seen up until that point that Russia would probably take military action. We thought that they actually might seize Crimea from Ukraine and that they would certainly uh, put some military pressure on Georgia as well because that was what Putin was threatening. Mm -hmm. And you know, we'd already seen um, you know, the Russians cross various thresholds. And so if we were going to give them some support for this, as which actually Bush and um, Vice President Cheney had already decided that. So before, <laughs> this is what sometimes happens to you. Get in there as an analyst and advisor, they've already made up their minds. They're just kind of you know, giving you a sort of a chance to maybe you know, change their mind, but they're not going to. They'd already decided on the policy because Bush had given a personal undertaking yeah. to the Ukrainian and Georgian That's presidents true. that he would support it. Yeah. We, we basically said, well, we then have to have a plan if, if we're going to put this forward. And there wasn't a plan. And so we ended up with the worst of both worlds. Georgia and Ukraine, because of the resistance mm -hmm. of uh, some of the other major um, allies like Germany and France, uh, didn't uh, get the membership action plan. They were told that one day there would be a NATO, but not any time soon. And then there was no plan for what we would do, just like there wasn't for the Budapest Memorandum in 1994 uh, to um, you know, support them yeah. if they got into any difficulty, which of course they did. Four months afterwards, Georgia gets invaded. And we thought that Ukraine would get invaded then too, just to be clear. But what happened was the Ukrainians pulled back very quickly. And they, in fact, um, fobbed the Russians off by... Um, in uh, Resigning a lease for the Black Sea Fleet mm -hmm. so that the Russians could have a longer term lease for the Black okay. Sea Fleet there. Mm -hmm. And so it's really then, you know, kind of after that that we start to get into the process that we have now that was starts to become predictable if you start to think back, you know, to those points and to those uh, different junctures. We should have been very attentive to all the threats um, uh, towards Ukraine and then thinking through. What were we going to do about it? So right back in 2008 in that war. And yeah, there's, there's different, and I could have yeah. probably picked other junctures as well. Course, there's lots yeah. of different junctures where we should have been more, but the, the bottom line is we should have been attentive the whole way through. And because of the fact that we don't have people in power for 22 years, mm -hmm. some people might want to be in power for 22 years, but all of us change all the time, um, you know, we, we can't keep the thread going. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's democracy and people lose sometimes. Um, as I can attest. Now, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, can I, 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 we've covered so many areas, but I'm so keen um, that, that, that we open this up a wee bit to, to questions. We have, we have colleagues with microphones on the left and the right, and we've even got a microphone upstairs. So I'm wondering if, um, if we've got anybody who'd like to ask a question. And I'll, 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 I'll go, we've got a gentleman in the centre there. But if, if everybody would like to put just, and, and then we've got, Somebody else here. So, well, first gentleman, but please, and then 
please feel free, everybody, to put your hands up, and I'll, and, right. and I'll, I'll try and keep an eye on as many as I can. Thanks. So, that that was wonderful. Um, I've got lots of questions about Russia, but uh, I'll cut them down to about three questions. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, or, Firstly, do you not think that the memorandum in 1994 in Budapest may have been a mistake in respect that there were parts of the Ukraine that was originally part of Russia, and that that would have caused the problem that has arisen. Uh, and secondly, um, Mikhail Gorbachev, um, what does he really think of Vladimir Putin? Has oh. he come out with any comments in the, in, in the, the press in Russia? And, and thirdly, because I've, I'm particularly interested in Hungary as well, has there been any comments by Viktor Orban uh, about the uh, situation in Ukraine and Russia. Mm. Okay, that's, that's quite a lot. Fiona, well, yeah, you're answering well, the questions because I, I don't have M to. Mikhail Gorbachev has been very cautious uh, about Putin. Um, uh, I mean, he's, he's in a very difficult position, Gorbachev, because from the perspective of people like Putin, he's the guy who lost the Soviet Union. And yes, you know, he um, is he's still with us. In fact, he really is still with us, right? I mean, I haven't missed anything in the last couple of days. I mean, it is, it is kind of amazing because, I mean, he, he, he's really getting on there. 91. And, yeah, I mean, he is in his 90s. He's not been in uh, the best of health. And he's managed to keep a degree of moral integrity. I mean, he's not the most popular person in Russia because of all of that history. But, he's, you know, he's had his own foundation. And Putin has largely left him alone. Precisely because he's been very careful about what he said. But I think, you know, we can all be fairly sure from behind the scenes that he's not happy. And it's certainly the Yeltsin family have actually been more outspoken, you know, again, you know, being quite cautious that they really feel that, you know, Boris Yeltsin had not made the best decision in terms of his choice of successor. This is one of those instances you were asking about the drivers before mm. and, you know, the personality of Putin where, you know, leadership really matters. If we all had an argument about does leadership make a difference, well, we can really see it because Putin made that decision to invade Ukraine, he didn't have to. And that actually leads me to both the Hungary question and your first point. So we're sitting in Scotland, right? Um, Scotland was not, uh, was independent uh, for um, a long period of time. And you had the union of the parliaments with England almost exactly at the same time that Peter the Great has the Battle of Poltava with the Emperor of Sweden, Charles XII. So the history of every country is filled with times when borders are in different places. Um, you know, at one point we were all, well, you weren't, but um, I was in the north of England. We were the furthest outposts of the Roman Empire. Hadrian's Wall was just about 30 miles away from, you know, where I lived. At different points, you know, the Scottish border was backwards and forwards. And, you know, India was part of the British Empire at different points, and Ireland. Uh, I, I often tell people that, just have a kind of mental exercise here. What um, Putin is doing in Ukraine is if, you know, Britain decided, or the United Kingdom decided, wanted Ireland back again. I mean, Ireland uh, and the lands of Ireland um, were part of uh, British um, domain far longer than parts of Ukraine were part of Russia. Now, Putin keeps taking us back to all kinds of different points in history. He'll take us to 988 when uh, Grand Prince Vladimir of Kiev was purportedly baptised in a place called Hersenes in Crimea. That was 988. But, you know, the, the Rurikid dynasty, the, the Rus, they were actually a bunch of Vikings. So maybe, you know, the Danes and the Swedes, you know, kind of, again, the Swedes had a claim to part of that territory. The Battle of Poltava, when um, King uh, uh, Charles XII of Sweden is kind of pushed back, he ends up in the Ottoman lands. The whole southern part of Ukraine was under the Ottoman Empire for a whole bunch of time, including Crimea. And, you know, part of the population of Crimea 
our Tatars, who are actually Turks. So I, I think it's really difficult to kind of pick your time in history. Calais was once part of England. I remember actually in history hearing that Mary I um, died with Calais engraved on her heart. I thought maybe that's why she died, engraving Calais on her heart. <laughs> I was about eight at the time, thinking that was a bit silly. You know, and why was Calais engraved on her heart? Well, I mean, again, I always thought that Calais was just another port that you took a yeah. ferry to, you know, in France. So if, you, if you, you basically start down that path, we all get ourselves into problems. This is where Hungary comes in as well, because Viktor Orban, um, as a Hungarian irredentist, he thinks about the, Aust the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Hungarian bit of it. And he's made all kinds of claims, including to parts of Transylvania and you know, Romania, and also to the, the, um, the region of Uzhgorod in Ukraine, where you have Hungarian speakers. And when um, Viktor Orban is not my favorite person, uh, as you'll find out in the book, and when he came to the White House, he basically, and he and his um, foreign minister started telling the vice president about the genocide of Hungarian people in Ukraine. There's no genocide of Hungarian speakers in Ukraine. But he also wanted to give um, Ukrainian Hungarian speakers Ukra uh, Hungarian passports. So everybody's playing out, you know, these old imperial um, thinking. And look, one of the um, motivations behind Brexit was, yep. um, you know, as you said, we've got the sixth anniversary was to get global Britain back again, mm -hmm. go back to a golden age. It was the golden age of Elizabeth I. You know, or what, what golden age are we going back to? Or Queen Victoria? You know, what, what is the implication of all of this? And this is Putin is basically, and he told us in a, in a recent interview, that he sees himself as Peter the Great. He's collecting lands. And so this is the danger that we have now because the lands that um, Peter the Great pushed Charles XII out of also include Poland, the Baltic states, and Finland. So I'm, I don't have the benefit of little marigolds, um, unfortunately, at the moment, as, as we've been getting used to. So what I'm going to try and do is get people to catch my attention, and I'm going to, 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 to ration you to, 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 to one question each as well. Um, and we've got a, a young gentleman just in the middle. Can you put your hand right up so that, so that, so that we can see you with them? That's great. And, and, and others, please try and catch my eye as well. I'll, First of all, thanks so much for being here. This has been great. Uh, one quick question: How is it back to be? Uh, how, how is it to be back in St. Andrews? Uh, several of us are just graduating now, uh, and, and having a lovely time. More importantly, uh, you've said that uh, Putin would willingly use nuclear weapons, and my impression—obviously, I'm no expert—but my impression is that, uh, save for some small pockets, we're not really speaking about nukes anymore. So. How should we be thinking about this issue in the next five, ten years? Thank you. Well, first of all, it's just great to be back in St Andrews, and congratulations to everybody who's graduated. I'm, I'm really pleased, uh, you know, basically to be here. And again, it's actually really strange to be sitting up here. I was usually sitting somewhere down there, trying not to be in the front because I usually fall asleep in the early morning <laughs> lectures. I'm sure everybody had that as well. <laughs> you know, I once came in with my overcoat of my pyjamas because I completely slept through the first class. So anyway, it's nice to be actually up here fully dressed and you know, kind of awake for now. Uh, but in terms of um, you know, Putin, he's already in a way used nuclear weapons, right, rhetorically. I mean, in a way that we wouldn't have even expected back in the 1980s. I mean, when I started studying Russian, it was the peak of the Cold War. Lucas Air Force Base was incredibly active. Every five minutes, it seemed there was a plane taking off to intercept 
uh, a plan coming out of Leipzig, Rebecca and uh, and uh, another a friend from the Russian uh, class down here, and Gavin, who were our uh, first arts Russian. And we were always looking out the window as another plane would take off to intercept, uh, you know, basically a fighter uh, jet coming up from Moscow somewhere over the, over the North Sea. And at, at that point, um, you know, we were thinking about this in a very sort of set piece. We had the Euro missiles crisis, that was the backdrop to us studying here. We'd had the <coughs> Cuban missile crisis, but in each case, those risks of nuclear war were over the stationing of new um, categories of uh, nuclear weapons, either in the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis in Turkey, and then you know, the, the Soviets threatening to uh, place them in Cuba, or in the Euro Missiles Crisis, SS-20 and Pershing missile, um, uh, missiles in, in Europe. So it was something that was kind of explicable in the, in the larger uh, nuclear standoff. Putin is doing something inexplicable by actually talking about using a nuclear weapon because he's not getting his way in Ukraine. He's also messed around already with nuclear substances. Think about the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko with polonium in London. I mean, we all knew that could only be the Russians. And this is, you know, a radiological substance. And it's already turned Alexander Litvinenko into a dirty bomb. And then there's going through the Chernobyl exclusion zone. The rest of us, you know, kind of here, we got irradiated here in St. Andrews in 1986. The plume of um, radioactive uh, material came right over here. We had to take iodine tablets for a while. The milk uh, couldn't be drunk. Uh, uh, some of the local farmers had to slaughter their sheep. I was at school here. Yeah, we had the same thing exactly. when we were kids. Yeah. And I, re I remember it poured with rain. We were all mm -hmm. outside with our umbrellas saying, these nuclear umbrellas? And this is, you know, kind of, mm -hmm. I was, it was really terrifying. And, and there he just, he sends his troops through the nuclear exclusion zone where people said he, wouldn't, he, he couldn't possibly do that. And he even makes them, they dig trenches. Mm -hmm. So all of those, all those um, soldiers, those conscripts who dug those trenches, in Chernobyl, they're likely to die later on, or at least certainly get sick from radio radiation poisoning. And then they shell deliberately the Zaporizhia plant, the largest nuclear plant in Europe, because they know, for example, the Germans are terrified after the Fukushima you know, accident, the whole idea of nuclear power. Uh, so it's, it's actually you know, putting nuclear power on the back foot as well. It's a time where there's going to be a massive energy crisis. And then the rhetorics about you know, using a nuclear weapon, getting us all scared, you know, there are, there are uh, cartoon-like um, uh, articles in Russian uh, papers showing the Sarmat, the, one of the hypersonic missiles, being um, you know, sent off from uh, somewhere near Moscow, going all the way around the globe, and look like it's going to hit Cleveland, Ohio, or somewhere, when you kind of look at a map. There's talks on the um, TV almost every night about you know, nuking the West and nuking the United States. I mean, over what? I mean, basically, a war that he himself has provoked uh, has, has declared, and also that he, in many respects, is in command of. He can stop that war if he actually wants to. He can find his own off-ramp and take us all off this. So he's already done um, quite a lot in the nuclear field. Um, we all now fear that proliferation may be uh, completely uh, at an end, because, you know, getting back to, you know, that kind of question about maybe being a mistake about the Budapest Memorandum, you know, for Ukrainians and others, it was a mistake to give up nuclear weapons. You know, because if, if uh, they had nuclear weapons still, maybe they wouldn't have been able to use them. But anyway, they were less likely to have been invaded. And so a lot of countries now are probably thinking about, well, maybe we should get a nuclear weapon. So proliferation, uh, that whole regime becomes, you know, quite different. So in a way, I would argue that Putin's already used, you know, kind of nuclear weapons, at least in a rhetorical and a demonstration effect to scare us. And he's, he's had the desired effect. We're all talking about yeah. it. So we have to you know, bear in mind why is he doing this. I mean, he's doing this to gain advantage mm -hmm. by intimidating us. 
And, you know, if, if he thinks that we need that extra intimidation, that's when you get the kind of risk. Right now, he seems to be, you know, winning to some degree, depending on how you define it on the ground, at least, you know, for now, in Donbass, he's got the slight edge here. Uh, but if he hadn't, you know, the risk of him using, you know, something for demonstration effect, I think, would, uh, would go up. So we just have to, again, be mindful he's already using nuclear weapons and, uh, to, some, to some extent. Um, I'm going to look for um, another question. I'm going to come to... I'm, I'm, I'm mindful that we've got a bit of a gender bias, bias with our we've questioners got, um, now. So a couple of... Um, do we have... Yeah, up at the oh, top. upstairs. Yeah, I'm yeah. so sorry. I'm it's so sorry. It's hard to look up and then kind of... I can't look up. Waving it and blind yeah. it. Thank you. Well spotted. That was my job. So. <laughs> thank well, you. I just looked up. <laughs> well done. Um, thank you for your time, Dr. Hill. This will be quite quick and rather simple. Just, I would just love to for you to kind of talk about working with different presidents. Obviously, you've worked with three different presidents, and how that has been professionally and privately. How have you dealt with that politically? Obviously, after eight years, they change. So, how have you dealt with that? Thank you. Oh, well, thank you very much for that question because. Um, I think you can be politically engaged without being partisan, you know, and I think mm -hmm. that um, actually that's often very helpful. I mean, I know that, you know, you're no longer in political office, but I think that you can remain, you know, very engaged and actually have a lot of influence yeah. without actually running for office or being part of a particular political party. I would say we're all politicians, whether we like it we or not. We are, exactly. Yes, and yes, particularly yeah. now, yeah. I mean, this is one of these all hands, hands on deck kind of moments. And so, you know, whenever I've, I've been in these positions working for different administrations, I'll always just try to do my best job and always just, you know, tell it like it is, irrespective of what the, you know, the political benefits of it might be. And I've always found myself somewhat crossways <laughs> with, the, you know, the various presidential administrations as a result of that. But, you know, that's the kind of, look, that's what I learned here at St Andrews, um, which was, you know, the importance of speaking up and speaking the truth and you know, telling it as it is, based on analysis, of course, not just on um, opinion. I also, um, you know, if you can't always get to the person themselves, and with Trump that was impossible, how can you get your message across in the most effective way? And often it's working with others. I mean, the, the one thing that I really benefited from was really working as a team. And I have to say that a lot of people say to me, well, it must have been very difficult in yeah. the Trump administration, but I worked with some amazing people. And actually, you all saw some of them uh, when at the first impeachment trial. I mean, I was testifying alongside David Holmes, who was also a graduate of St Andrews, and we both went, what? <laughs> I hadn't realised I'd known David Holmes for quite some time, and somehow it had never come into conversation that we were both from St Andrews. And that was just you know, one of those remarkable moments. Actually, there was loads of people from St Andrews behind the scenes in the, the government, many of whom um, had actually studied in the terrorism centre here or international relations, the government had sent them, um, and all of them were focused on a mission. There were lots of people who were detailed into the National Security Council, and we all felt that we were part of something, that it was always, you know, kind of, we were trying to just do the best possible job. And that was something that I found, honestly, personally, very inspiring. Yeah. That people were politically engaged, but they weren't partisan, they were trying to do the right thing. And um, Sally invoked uh, James Wilson um, in the opening address. Um, he was the... Um, St Andrews graduate, one of the founding fathers who put we the people into the preamble um, of the um, American constitution. And I always bore that in mind. It's all we the people and what can we yep. do? It's not just what one man does or one woman does, but um, and what we all do. 
And that's what I always try to remember, you know, when working, it's not, you just don't work for one president, you know, you're all working together, we're all in this together, and it's a sort of a shared, a shared mission. So I, I have to say, and please everybody, put, put your hands up, um, I was always astonished I sat on the Foreign Affairs Committee, the number of officials, regardless of what you think about what people are trying to do at the moment in terms of politics, working so hard, and a large number of St Andrews graduates and governments around the world, um, including one Dr Hill that I got to meet as well. Um, yes, sir. Thank you. Um, I want to just make a quick comment and ask you a question. Uh, your comment about uh, the American philanthropy and endowment is something, I, I'm, as a member of the American Foundation, is something we talk about yeah. daily. I mean, not daily at all of our meetings. And it is so profoundly different in the United States. But I have a, a somewhat simplistic question. Do you believe it's reasonable or even possible for political actions to have an effect on the petro revenue going into Russia? Yeah, that's really the big question I think we're all grappling with. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say across Scotland, uh, the poem of North Sea Oil and, you know, thinking about, you know, the role of Aberdeen and, mm -hmm. you know, places here that um, we're trying to affect a very complex energy transition that in the best of times was going to take a, a while, um, 10, 15 or more years. And usually in energy transitions, you don't get, when we move from, you know, coal to oil and, you know, bringing on national gas and then nuclear, we didn't really get rid of the previous fuel. You know, so this is actually the first time in history which we've been trying to get rid of major fuels that we've all relied on. And I think there's a really um, uh, strong argument to be made that Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine precisely now because it was the period of peak demand for oil. And against the backdrop of COP26, which yeah. is just down you know, the road here in Glasgow, he knew it was going to take a while. But this particular moment, the demand for oil and, and gas, and Russia's natural gas was at its um, the peak, and he, he pretty much bets that we, we uh, would not and then could not uh, transition away from it in any um, uh, short period of time. And look, he's obviously right. I mean, we're already seeing that India and other countries are sort of, you know, basically stepping up as we try to move away from it. It's obviously not just electricity generation and all that demand that we are now with battery um, electric vehicles, you know, the idea that we're going to get rid of the internal combustion engine, you know, in the next uh, 5, 10, 15 years. Mm. We've also got cryptocurrencies and all this demand for electricity and all over the place as we're kind of going into a more connected um, uh, world with artificial intelligence. You know, Putin's been looking at all of this and he knows it's going to be very difficult. Um, he pretty much figures that um, the demand uh, for energy and the uh, increasing prices is going to lead to a popular backlash. Um, and. Um, you know, we've got so much invested in the, the petrochemical industry. Sorry, you talking about plastics. It's petrochemicals. Um, I, I mean, I think it was an incredibly important point. I'm sitting here, we've got a plastic bottle, we've got a plastic cup. I'm sure my clothes are plastic. Uh, the chair is plastic, table. Bits of it. Yeah, bits, bits of it, plastic. Yeah. And we're going to have a really hard time moving away from it. So absolutely, this is going to be extraordinarily difficult. And there's been all the numbers run on the amount of revenue that the Russian government is bringing in because anything over a certain, um, it used to be $27 a barrel, goes right into 
uh, the, uh, for, that's just for oil and then you know, the equivalent of the gas, into the state revenues. And that's why, of course, you know, Putin pushes everybody into buying in rubles. That makes you know, the, uh, the state flush with cash for paying its own, um, its own bills internally. The big thing for Russia, actually, on sanctions, is sanctions on other kind of components. So oil and gas, we may be fighting a bit of a losing battle for some time here, unless you know, we all you know, work very hard with other countries to you know, push back on uh, purchases uh, from Russia. And then we've got to deal with you know, prices anyway, with, uh, with demand, because we can't change quickly. But it's really where I think Russia is going to be most impacted is on the critical components for their technology. We're already seeing in the military sphere, for example, that they don't have the circuits, they don't have the replacement parts, they're going to have to cannibalise um, aircraft and tanks and everything. But that's also going to take a bit of time for um, that to kick in. So I think we're in a very dangerous moment right now where with, with rising prices uh, for energy, all of the knock-on effects here, the difficulties of us trying to kind of figure out how we transition uh, food, prices, obviously, commodities of all kinds. This is going to be tough, and we have to be honest about it. We have to keep talking about it. And, you know, we, we can't, I think, just, you know, brush this aside. I think this is the biggest challenge we actually face. So more innovation from St Andrews with all those Masters of Science graduating today. I hope you're into the post... Um, uh, you know, petroleum plus plastics world, uh, and, but we probably can't move fast enough. Okay, so I'm going to take the prerogative of chair because we're almost at time now, and I'm going to ask you, Fiona, in less than a minute because we don't have much time. Oh gosh, you, yes. You okay. saw a lot of yeah. really impressive graduates going out into the world today, who are facing unprecedented char uh, challenges that we've covered: Russia emerging from the post-pandemic, cost of living crisis, economy inequalities and of course the climate emergency. What's your final message um, for those graduates going out today? You've got a minute, sort it out. I've got, I've got a couple of, uh, of uh, graduates up there, Chris and Leah, who I you know, kind of know well as uh, Stella, I was about to graduate eventually up there as well, who I, I know have all been you know, thinking about these um, issues actually out in their jobs as well as you know, here at St Andrews. St Andrews is already you know, doing a lot, thinking about biomass plants mm -hmm. and everything that you're doing here. This is what we need. We need everybody, all hands on deck, to start thinking about it in the networks. I would just urge all of the graduates, not just the Masters of Science, who obviously might have some of the technological capabilities doing this, but everybody, to, 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 get, to get in on this. Yeah. Starting to think about what we can all do. We could stop, you know, kind of using plastics, um, you know, start thinking about just in ourselves buying less clothes. Mm -hmm. Is looking at my daughter down there, uh, and, uh, and, and, and you know, kind of thinking about what we can do, but we banding together is the only way that we can do this. And let's not wait for people to do it on top because it is such a tough question, as you've pointed out here. We can all have to start thinking about how we can do things from the grassroots, but we all have agency, yeah, and we all have a lot of capacity. And it's really in universities and the networks that we're creating here you think that liberal, we can take things forward. Do you think liberal democracy is fit for it? <clears throat> we have to make it fit for it. I mean, I, I think we're, we've all put ourselves on notice, right, that we know that there's a lot of problems, but we can also, as I said, roll up our sleeves, put shorter sleeves on here, and, and figure out what we can do. I mean, partly, you know, writing the book was a challenge to myself, yeah. because I started thinking, well, what could I do, you know, out of this? And, you know, when I was starting to write the book, and some of the things at the end, to me as well, I had somebody write and say, are you just preaching this? And I said, no, no, I need to do this too. You know, how, how can we all go out and do, you know, do more ourselves? Yeah. So let's all sort of think about when we leave here what we can all what we can all do together to to fix things. Well, look, that's a great moment to stop on. Um, 
first of all, can I say, Dr. Fiona Hill, thank you so much. That was fascinating. Oh, well, thank you. Your, your, your time today. Um, you can buy a copy of the book outside from the, as ever, excellent Toppings Bookshop. Um, I'd recommend anybody to go and visit. It is outside. And then I'd encourage you to turn to the afterwards at the back, where it's got some practical actions for us all to think about at the very back. Um, can I, apologies for those of you I wasn't able to get in, sorry, but we covered so much ground. And Fiona, thank you. Thanks no, thank very much for coming along. Thank you. Thank you.